I'm going to read the scripture that Pastor Matt will be preaching from today. It's Romans 8, 28 through 39. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we shall face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is God's word. Four years ago, Colin Campbell uh, got in a car with his wife and two children, and they were driving to Joshua Tree National Park, uh, but they never made it there. On their way, a drunk driver T-boned their car at 65 miles an hour, and Colin Campbell's two children were, were pronounced dead at the scene. Last week, Colin Campbell was was interviewed in a podcast, and uh, he actually has written a book, and he actually desires to help people process grief. But he said something in that interview that jarred me, and this is what he said. I think it'll be above me on the wall. Colin said, if your worldview includes the belief that my tragedy is part of God's plan... Or that my children are in a better place, please don't share that with me. It'll only upset me. Now, Colin isn't alone. Uh, Many people struggle to believe in God. Um, They struggle to understand that God would have any part in suffering, and and particularly tragedies like these. Uh, For others, it's, it's actually just too painful to even hope. Uh, that there's, there's almost, it seems safer or easier just to doubt and to be cynical. Uh, this is probably why in the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche said this. He said, in reality, 
Hope is the worst of all evils because it prolongs man's torments. Uh, So I have some compassion for Nietzsche. I have compassion for him because uh, some of you know about eight years ago, my father had had a stroke and there were early indications that he was going to get well and we hoped he would be home. And yet he died a few days later. I face something similar today. On July 31st, my mom gets diagnosed with a pretty aggressive cancer called acute myeloid leukemia. Uh, So in a seemingly robust woman now has an ugly cancer diagnosis hanging over her head. And so you kind of have this like flashback to dad and be like, is is hope going to just be a torment and a disappointment? Um. But the thing that I want to show you from Romans 8 that's for me and for you is that the kind of hope that Friedrich Nietzsche is talking about is not the same kind of hope that I think is discussed and described and and held out in the Bible. Uh, For many people, Nietzsche included, I think, you know, hope is kind of like the power of positive thinking or maybe like putting out good vibes into the universe it's thinking that if I think hard enough and hope hard enough, then then something's going to happen. But the biblical idea of hope is that hope is ultimately trust in the God who exists. The God who is there. So rather than, than a torment, the Bible actually presents hope as a remedy to despair. Uh, The Bible presents hope as the only anchor in the storms of suffering. Now, now last week, I appreciated Michael Beigler. He he walked us through the middle portion of Romans 8. and, And he showed us that there is this hope of redemption. And because there is this hope of redemption, creation itself is longing for that redemption. Uh, Our bodies are groaning for better bodies, some of us more so than others. Right? Uh, and, then, and then at the very end of the section that Michael preached last week, he spoke about how even the Holy Spirit groans within the Christian for the future, groans to, for that day when God's children will be in resurrected bodies like the Son of God. And I want you to just look at the verse that he ended on last week, verse 27. So if you have your Bible, look at this. I think this is a very, there's a very profound biblical promise. It's speaking about the Holy Spirit of God. And it says, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And so what God is doing, the triune God, is at work in sending the Holy Spirit, interceding, praying on our behalf, shaping us to to live and believe in accordance with God's will. He wants us to be certain of God's purposes. And what I I want us to see, and what I, I think I'm seeing from verse 27 and following is, some of the things that Paul says the Spirit is doing to work out God's will in our hearts and in our minds is then fleshed out further in verse 28 to the end. These are the things the Holy Spirit wants us to know and believe and cling to when the storms hit. And then this passage is driving to verse 38 where Paul will say, I am convinced. 
I am persuaded. I am won over by these precious truths in the Bible. These are anchor truths. Truths meant to hold the Christian believer on the hardest days and through the fiercest storms. Going all the way back to verse 18, Paul had introduced the idea of suffering. That suffering is something that we face every day. In verse 35, he's going to start describing some of those suffering, like famine and persecution and all manner of tribulation. So here's the question. How, how does a Christian live when, when the bottom drops out? How does a Christian live when the bottom drops out? Nietzsche, he looked at pains, he looked at sorrows, and the, he looked at torments, and he said, let hope die. All right? Nietzsche probably was the first to coin the term, suck it up, buttercup. Don't check that on the internet. I, I think the Holy Spirit is saying otherwise. And what the Holy Spirit has laid out here in these verses is, is that the hope of the Christian is anchored in the sovereign, saving, and loving God. That's our hope. And it's as certain as God himself. So here's the thing. When, when hope seems to fade, if it seems to ebb, there's things that we need to know. There's things that we're going to need to say. And there's things that we're going to be convinced of. And if you want to check me, those are the verbs that you'll see in verse 28. There's things you need to know. Verse 31, there's things we're going to need to say. We're going to have to reply to our doubts. And then in verse 38, there's things that we need to be convinced of. So let's start with, what do we need to know? Paul's answer to this is in verses 28 through 30. What do we need to know? We need to know that God has a sovereign purpose. That's what we need to know. Verse 28 begins and says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, there has been a lot of scholarly ink spilled over the expression, in all things. What does that mean? Does this go back to the, in all our groanings from earlier in chapter 8? Is it, is it in all our sufferings? Back in verse 18. Well, I'm going to go with the crowd of scholars that believe in all things means all things. Right? That's every, every aspect, facet, and issue of our lives. God is working in all things. So this does include suffering, but it's not limited to suffering. God has a purpose for all things. Now, some of you have been around the block in Christianity for a long time. You've, you've heard this verse. You might even have it on your wall. Anybody have this verse on their wall somewhere? Maybe you aren't Christians. Uh, um, I was with some pastors this week, and they were actually helping me talking about this text. And they, they, they kind of they said, Matt, you know, don't you hate it when people just quote this verse to people when they're suffering? You know, someone comes and they share with you that... You know, they're going through a really hard time. They're going through a divorce. They lost a friend. They're experiencing illness. And someone says, well, don't you know that in all things, God works for good? Now, I want to say something. I actually disagreed with those pastors. This is one of the most glorious truths in the midst of suffering. 
But you can say it glibly. That is, you can say it without compassion. You can say it because you don't want to have to care for that person at the moment. You don't want to have to commit for the next six months to call them every week and say, how are you? Can I do your laundry this week? Can I come sit with you in the cancer treatment? So there's a way in which you can say Romans 8.28, which is trying to get yourself off the hook from caring about someone who's suffering. And yet, at the same time, I pray that we're as a church that we say this verse to each other in a way that says we got to hold on to the rock together. If we don't have this verse, I don't think we can face suffering. But the thing about this verse is we, we, we walk through suffering and these promises of God together. And the promise says that God-loving people, that is Christians, can know that all things are working toward an ultimate good. That is, my mom's cancer is working toward an ultimate good. And how do I know this? Because my mom is a God-loving Christian. She loves him. Now, this doesn't mean cancer is an immediate good. In fact, cancer, disease, death, divorce, relational instability, broken families, abuse, these are all part of God's judgment of sin. And, and these are bad consequences that fall on sinners and saints alike. But God's intention is that these immediate consequences lead to ultimate goods for his children. And we all have some concept of this. Like we know that uh, things that are immediately painful and sorrowful end in ultimate goods, right? Uh, birth pains. Those are bad, I hear. <laughs> Carrie doesn't like it when I say we've had children. She's like, we didn't do that. I did that. <laughs> right? So we know that you can go through an immediate suffering for an ultimate good. Uh, there's, there's, you know, there's college football players right now that are immediately going through two-a-day practices and lifting weights for the ultimate good of hopefully winning a football game. So we understand the idea of immediate pain, immediate sorrow for a greater good. And, and God is hanging this verse for us so that we can know that in all things, God is working good for those who love him. But here's the thing. You will not like this truth. You will not like this tr- truth if you think your plans and your purposes are more important than God's. You, you won't like this. You'll resist this. My, if my mom put her health above God's plan for cancer... She would resent him. So you won't like this truth if you don't love God and want to be a part of his sovereign purposes. In one of the most poignant letters that John Newton wrote, a writer of Amazing Grace, he's writing to, I think it was a sister who was bewailing the suffering of another sister. And his admonition is, you need to kiss the hand of the God who smites you. Like, do you trust God and are submitted to his purposes above your plans and your purposes? So too, this verse serves as a warning to all non-Christians that your life is not working toward an ultimate good. 
if you don't trust him. Those, that suffering is a prelude to greater suffering. This promise is though, for those who love God and are called to his purposes. If you resist God, if you hate God, the suffering you're tasting now will only get more harsh and fitting and final. And so for you, the invitation is to turn from your enemy to God and turn to love for God. And we'll hear why in a second, but primarily it's because he sent his son for you, to die for you. But Christians have a good end promised. Not because we are any less sinful, but because of God's sovereign purpose for them. That sovereign purpose gets spelled out more in verses 29 and 30. Hear them again. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Uh, These verses have been properly called the golden chain of salvation. Each of God's actions are linked together with something far far stronger than like a 6,000 pound tested transport chain. This is God who works. And he links them based on his word, his promises, and his character. Verse 29 gives God's general summary of his plan, and that is that he foreknew in advance that he was going to predestine humans to be made like his eternal son. The son of God for all eternity would come, (laughs) become like us so that we could become like him. Now that doesn't mean that if you trust Christ, you're ever going to be divine. You're not going to be divine. You're not going to be omniscient, all knowing, all powerful and able to be in all places at once. That's rightly and fittedly the sole uh, character qualities of the triune God. But one day those who trust in Christ will have a resurrected body like Christ. Those who trust in Christ will have a, a glorious splendor about them. And that was God's intention from the very beginning. The Son of God became like us so that we could be like him. And then Paul, Paul provides more chain links of the, this sovereign plan in verse 30. In chain link number one, Paul says, God predestined us to be like the Son. Right, that's God pre-selecting or choosing in advance those who, whom his children would be. Uh, the Greek word here is where we get the English term election or to elect. God knew intimately and chose intentionally those who would be his. Next chain link, it says God called us to be like his son. That term calling is a summons from the divine God to respond to the divine message. Now today, I'm calling. I'm calling, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I'm calling. But my summons has far less power than God's call. Because it says the ones whom God calls, he also justifies. Sometimes this is called God's effectual calling. When he calls, people respond. Someone, was it Dave, when he was praying earlier in the prayer, Paul of Damascus had intended to go and kill Christians, but God had called Paul, and Paul repented. Glory to God. 
chain link number three, it says God justifies us through the Son. We talked about this several weeks ago, but just to remind you, justification is this legal term. It's God's legal declaration to the world and to the universe that those who have trusted in his Son are right with God. They are forgiven of sin. No person could ever become like the Son of God if they remain guilty before God. But God justifies us through his Son. God predestines, God calls, God justifies. And then lastly, in verse 30, it says, God glorifies. And Paul is so certain of God's intention to bring us to glory that he puts the verb in the past tense. Did you catch that? Justify glorified. The glorification of God's children was certain before time, is certain now in this time, and will be certain for all time. You know, of great importance, if you look at these verses, there is a repeated demonstrative pronoun. Did you catch it? You guys know what demonstrative pronouns are? These and those, right? What's going on here is Paul maintains that every person predestined will be included in every person called, and every person called will be justified, and so on. These and those that God has called, they will be glorified. And since it's God who does all the actions and God has no rival, you can know that God will succeed. Friends, we need to know these things. We need to know that God has a sovereign purpose. We absolutely need to know this. But Paul doesn't want us to stop at just knowing things. He actually moves us to go from things that we know to things that we would say. Like, what will we declare? How will we reply? How will we speak? Or or even maybe stand up to God's defense when people come to accuse us of God bringing suffering into our lives. There's an idea of which we need to give lip to our faith. We need, we need to speak to the doubts and the lies and the cynicism in our own hearts. We also need to be able to speak on God's defense when people accuse him of things that are not true. You see, we know that God never wastes a hurt, but the hurts still keep coming. Sometimes it's physical threats or persecution. Sometimes it's seasons of unemployment, illness, uh, unexpected de- death and disease. And at the same time, you'll have your own internal doubts. You'll have your own external pressures. How will you face them? What will you say? Paul moves into verse 31. He says, say these things. Did you catch in verse 31? He says, what shall we say then in response to these things? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not also along with him graciously give us all things? Another question, who who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This morning I was thinking about the uh, somewhat long rivalry between the Iowa State football team and the Iowa football team. 
And if you've ever been around men, when it gets close to that game, there's a lot of uh, banter back and forth about who's going to win and who's better. Uh, Sometimes Iowa fans love to say to Iowa State fans, we always beat you. Well, you don't always beat beat us. You just usually beat us. (laughs) The record is 23 wins to Iowa State, 46 wins for the Iowa Hawkeyes. So you usually win. You usually beat us. I think you beat us from like 2015, 2016 to 2021. But we have last year. We got something. (laughs) It won't be this year. Paul lists all things that might threaten your security or threaten God. But guess what? God wins every time. There's, there's no rival that ever wins. Paul begins by saying, so how do we reply to hard questions that surface in our life? What's our, what's our response? What do we say? Could they win? Could the rivals ever win? And then the first thing he asked the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? All the Sunday school people are like, well, I know. God's going to win. He's, he's really strong. No one's stronger than God. God can beat cancer. God... But it's interesting that when, when Paul answers this question, he doesn't answer it with God's power. He actually answers it with God's compassion. Isn't that striking? Who can be against us? And he says, no one. Why? Because God didn't spare his son. He gave his, think about it. He, I don't know how many planets he has. He's got like millions of planets and billions of stars. He's got one son. God didn't spare his son. And he gave him up for us all. And if he's given that, how will he not graciously give us all things? So when there's this question of, can anyone defeat me? Is is there anyone against us? Just remember God's compassion. He gave his son. He'll take care of you. He'll hold you. you So friends, in, in the midst of loneliness, remember that the father gave up his son to loneliness. In the midst of persecution, remember that Jesus suffered persecution. If God would give up his perfect Son, to such horrific circumstances, know for certain that you are not abandoned in your horrific circumstances. God intends to bring about all the good things he has planned. We can trust the God who has compassion for us. Well, then Paul fires back with kind of two types of questions. Well, who's going to bring any charge against us? And who, who can condemn us? And the answer is no one can condemn you. There's no one left to condemn you. The one who could condemn you is God. But he's justified you by his son. The one who could condemn you is Jesus Christ. It says he has died for you. He has risen for you. And now he's in heaven interceding for you. So if God is at work in reconciling you to himself, and now God is at work in interceding for you, you can be certain that no one's going to be able to condemn you or charge you. It won't succeed. We can claim the words. I love these words in Isaiah 50, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 50, verses 8 and 9. It says, He who vindicates me is near. Your vindicator is near. 
Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will wear, they will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. A scholar by the name of Michael Bird summarizes this section well when he says this The only one capable of condemning them is the risen and exalted Christ who is interceding on their behalf. Like that's our hope. That's what we need to say when threats of condemnation or accusations of trouble. Jesus has got me. He's praying for me. He's holding me. Christ is risen and he will hold us. Christ is risen and he prays for us. And yet another persistent doubt maybe rises its head. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That is, what, where do we go when the circumstances get really ugly? He says, shall trouble or hardship or nakedness or famine or sword? What about those things? And what was interesting is that Paul at that moment, writing through the Holy Spirit, he quoted a verse from Psalm 44. And the verse he quotes is verse 22 and says, As it is written, for your sake, we face death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, then and now we write songs about our fears and our hopes. I encourage you, go read all of Psalm 44 this week because it contains both fear and hope. The poem actually begins with expressions of, of confidence and praise for the God who saves his people. And then in the meat of the psalm, it begins to talk about the trials and the suffering that they're going through. And then he says correctly, God has sent that trouble. God's hand has brought that pain. And yet in the midst, the psalm cries out in faith, for your sake, for your sake, God, we'll take this all the day long. And then the last line of Psalm 44 reads this way. It's a prayer. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. What the psalmist prays in faith, what the psalmist prays in faith, Paul says has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. Christ rose up. Christ defeated death. Christ ensured salvation. And that's why the next thing out of Paul's mouth is verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is, we may suffer, well, those who suffer for God, those who suffer will God will share in the victory of God. And so for your sake, we'll go through this because we're going to share in the victory and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, the term more than conquerors, it's, it's kind of a fun term. It's, it's a compound Greek word. It's hyper-Nike. Hyper-Nike. You guys, anybody wearing Nikes this morning? Nike is an expression that means victory. It's the god of victory in the Greco-Roman pantheon. And when Paul says, how secure and how safe are we? We are hyper-Nikes. More than conquerors. 
We share in the over-the-top over victory that Jesus uh, experienced when he rose out of the grave 2,000 years ago. And so when we're faced with doubts and when hope seems to ebb, we need to reply with God's accomplished victory. That's what we do. We just keep replying. We keep saying, God wins. God sent his son. God's son rose. We're going to win. We're going to hyper win. And that, let's be honest, that works better on some days than others. Uh, you've all known, or maybe you've been this one, you've all known godly saints who've gone through seasons of suffering. God is their anchor in the storm. Uh, but some days they feel like they're losing their grip on God. Um, they feel like their faith is slipping away. Well, we've some, seen something we need to know. We've seen something we need to say. But we need to close with the truth that Paul says we need to be convinced of. And it's this. Be convinced of God's love. That is, his loving grip is stronger and more important than yours. Verses 38 and 38, 38 and 39 are like this crescendo at the top of Paul's uh, hope for us. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That last little phrase, I mean, that is in ocean depths of theological, uh, uh, like, profundity, right? It's, it, it, it's talking about two members of the Trinity. <laughs> the Father, it names the Father. It names the Son. The Son is identified as Messiah Jesus, the Lord of lords and King of kings. It speaks of God's love, which is rooted in his essence, for God is love. And it says, we, <laughs> we can know... That the love of God is secured for us in Christ Jesus forever. Nothing can separate you. No created thing, no demon, no death, no, nor disease can separate you from God's love. I, I mean, it would be interesting to sit around sometime this week and just ask yourself, what were the things that scared you to death when you were a little kid? Was it darkness, demons? Some of you maybe faced abusers. Some of you lost your parents or you lost your siblings. And Paul says nothing's going to be able to separate you from God's love. Be utterly convinced of this. I really appreciated that uh, about 50, 60 years ago, a famous Swiss theologian by the name of Karl Barth he came and did this little tour of the United States, and everybody liked Karl Barth. He was such a smart Christian theologian. And when he was being interviewed, they said, Okay, Dr. Barth, like, could you summarize for us the message of Christianity? And he had this nice, heavy Swiss accent that I won't embarrassingly try to replicate. But he did say this, Jesus loves me, yes I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was the profound truth that Karl Barth had in his heart and he presented to us. And that's really what Paul is ending here. Just know that no earthly terror, no created thing could ever pull you away from God. 
God is the merciful and powerful shepherd who holds his sheep securely. We need to know God's sovereign purpose. We need to reply with God's accomplished victory. And then we need to be convinced of God's love. A number of years ago, uh, a woman went to visit her mom who was dying in a hospital. And this woman happened to be a Christian scholar. And the dying mom had walked with God for decades. She believed and she had trusted her Bible. But the pain and the suffering and the prospect of death caused her to turn to her daughter and ask this question. She said, honey, what if it is not true? What would you have said to that question? And what do you think the Christian scholar would have said? Well, she looked at her mom in the eye and she said this. Jesus loves you, and he would never lie. Jesus loves you, and he would never lie. Father in heaven, I pray that we would put all of our hope in the promises of God, in the truthfulness of Scripture. We thank you that Jesus Christ has proven who he is through miraculous deeds, a sacrificial death, and a glorious resurrection and all those who put their trust in him have everlasting life all of the promises of god are yes in christ jesus loves us and he never lies we pray that this would be our anchor we pray that you would be our hope in christ's name amen